welcome again to Unscripted Equity Curiosity. This is season two, episode 10. And this is the second part of our interview with Jay Van Skyver, the sector head for industrials at Hedgeye. Uh, and you want to hear this because it's strong views on Tesla, strong views on uh, EVs and everything else that makes Jay Van Skyver uh, amazing. Please join us. It's interesting, Jay, that when you sort of like, when you look at Elon, the thing that stands out to you most is, is his resilience. Um, uh, just to turn that around for a second, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on the podcast today is because of your resilience. Um, you know, even just listening to the first half of this podcast so far, um, you know, you're you're such a powerful truth seeker that you can stay with the truth, even when the rest of the world goes into crazy town. And I personally find that extremely difficult. I think that's one of our, as a sell side, whatever you want to call us, cross between sell side, buy side analysts, but with all of our recommendations constantly public, right. And like everything we say and everything we write is public. It's not like we can be like, Oh, I hate this stock. And then like it's up 16% over the next three days. And we're like telling our PM like, okay, okay, let it go. Let's, we'll, we'll come back to it another time, you know? And like, we can tell all of our friends, oh, no, 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 we covered, we covered. Like, you know, to be so strong to stay, and you've done such a good job the last couple of years where there was, there was this incredible bubble in narrative stocks. I mean, Tesla's still up there, right? It still hasn't broken. But if you look at like my entire space, like that whole tech space essentially has broken. Um, it looks like, you know, in hindsight, right, the whole space was on some kind of like a, um, helium, but, but especially the, uh, the most, like the, the weirdest outlandish, most outlandish narratives, like I'd come to them if they had already sort of popped. And yes, yeah, sometimes I was just like, oh, I want to short the hell out of this thing, but, I, but it's going up 5% a day, so how can I? And then the other part of me is also like, well, maybe there's something I'm missing. Like maybe there's like a, um, maybe there's something here that like about the future that that the market's picking up today that that I don't understand, right? Like that whole like, oh yeah, no, but this has great future applicability and it just reflected and the future's coming now and all that kind of stuff. How do you, as a stock picker, do this? How do you stick to this? Like even now, the beauty of your position to be pointing out like, you know, hey, he's owned by China and he's 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 going to take Twitter in that direction. So if anybody thinks there's free speech coming, it's free speech minus whatever China doesn't want him to have in Twitter. Um, so I, I'm just how do you how do you do that, I guess, is my question. And and give us an example of like, I don't know, plug or one of the other ones that you've shorted that just like. It was just a com one of these complete asinine situations. And you were just, you pointed it out, but yet the world was all in this crazy town and it just like completely evaporated essentially. I think that's a great question. And one I feel tremendous anxiety about every day, as I'm sure you do too. Uh, it, I come from a long, short background, right? So I look at our, at our positions and I'm like, look, I got MP materials. I got Albemarle. I'm long lithium. We have a whole EV metals deck. I think the problem with any of these bubbles or booms or overvaluation stories is that there's a deep element of truth to them. Like in the dot-com bubble, the internet's going to change the world. Well, guess what? The internet did change the world a lot. And those people were kind of right, right? Uh, but it didn't mean it wasn't a bubble. 
And, you know, in any kind of situation like that, you need to pick the winners or not, uh, you know, and the losers. And I think the OEMs in EVs will compete away excess profits. And the great thing that people are missing is that there isn't nearly enough lithium to produce anything like the electric cars that everybody wants. To get to 10% penetration of EV sales, you'd need to double the world's lithium output, right? That's really hard. It takes years to build a mine. Oh, lithium is everywhere. You think that if you're like finding a really dumb answer, finding an exploitable deposit in a geography that'll let you build a mine where you can place the tailings and uh, not have terrible byproducts, all the things that go with mining, that's really hard. Uh, so if you're looking where the excess profits will be and the part of the EV story on the long side that we've gotten, I think, pretty resoundingly right, is look at lithium prices, look at uh, NDPR prices for the rare earth magnets and the motors. So we have, um, you know, we have, I think VW uh, is going to end up being a leader in electric vehicles. They already are. As we pointed out, the Porsche Taycan is the best uh, EV available, albeit expensive. It's a Porsche. Of course, it's expensive. I spec my Porsche all the time uh, and it's very expensive. I don't buy it because it doesn't have room for kids. Uh, but the reality is that we've gotten like a good chunk of the EV long thesis right. Uh, and then, you know, we look on the short side, we've gotten Tesla wrong. Um, although we added Tesla in June of 2017 and it underperformed for the next like two and a half years. So, and then he pivoted very clearly in 2019 to much more aggressive. And we wrote a number of notes about that. And people on Twitter were like, you're wrong on Tesla. I was like, well, actually here's this cover some note we wrote. And it explains something you're not going to want to read about how, you know, basically never short cornered management teams, right? And it goes through uh, a whole variety. It, it, we do that quote from, you know, Ben Franklin that we always, or we tribute to Abraham Lincoln, like never short uh, uh, manufacturers that are getting into manufacturing results, right? When you're just going to be GE in the nineties and manufacture your numbers, that's where Tesla went. I mean, how fucking dumb do you have to be? How much did Elon Musk get paid by Tesla? Does anyone know this? in his 2018 pay package, everyone knows he's the richest guy in the world, right? And he's the richest guy in the world because of Tesla. And everyone knows that's like $300 billion, right? Or $200 billion. So you'd have to be pretty fucking dumb not to realize that Tesla paid their CEO $100 billion. Well, guess who doesn't have $100 billion in revenue? Tesla. So how the fuck are you paying this guy $100 billion and you're reporting a profit? Well, it's just grant date valuation. You mentioned plug. Plug is sold warrants with its forklifts, which is very funny when you think about it. Like, hey, Ami, take my research and I'm going to give you hedge eye warrants. You know, like it turns out that plug power in the bubble uh, of liquidity from the pandemic went nuts. And basically, Amazon and Walmart got paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars for every uh, forklift they took, right? It was completely ridiculous. And when Amazon asked to, um, you know, basically redeem some of their warrants early. Uh, Plug was like, sure, we love you. You basically are the only good thing we have going for us other than Walmart and uh, do whatever you want. And what it triggered was a massive restatement where they had to revalue all the warrants they wrote towards economic value on current stock prices, what they actually got. And that's how you end up with negative revenue, right? So, if you think that like Tesla is paying Elon Musk $100 billion and is 
economically profitable, not get, because, you know, what is grant evaluation if not just a, uh, you know, an expedient uh, simplification of a complex issue that usually doesn't matter because nobody's getting paid multiples of revenue, right? Like that's, you know, it's usually like, oh yeah, it really would be 5 million bucks because the guy got paid more or whatever. Anyway, uh, that's the kind of like truth that you can say and be like, this is really obvious. Am I, the people who are along this are winning, but very, very unwilling to see the truth of it. But there's a lot of very basic truth that we can point to uh, that, you know, has been effective. And, you know, we, we are in a situation where this is a company that in 2019 was very much, as he's admitted, f- fighting for its survival and basically said what it needed to say. So it, it went out and it said it had, it had autonomy day, which go back and listen to autonomy day. It was a bunch of bullshit, right? And either the guy is not brilliant and didn't know that was a bunch of bullshit, or he is brilliant and he didn't know it was a bunch of bullshit. I'm in the latter category, but everyone can make their own decisions. So, Brilliant. Amazing answer. I, I, I wasn't even really aware of that issue um, in terms of the, the grant date. Um, amazing that Amazon and Walmart made so much money buying uh, forklifts. Um, it's crazy. This is the kind of thing that you and I saw happen in various bubbles, you know, MCI, WorldCom type of stuff that, you know, like I never thought would really come back. But I guess maybe I should have known better because the SEC never really became a very strong organization. Um, you know, Elon should take over the SEC, and them, bring AI to the SEC, not even just AI, just like automated response, automated Wells notices like, oh, we, you know, these set series of things tr- trigger a software reaction. You get a Wells notice appearing court. Um but I wanted to ask you a question about like from a stock picker's perspective also, because I mean, Tesla hasn't cracked and we were just talking about, you know, is this their Icarus moment? And, and I don't know, from a, from an outside perspective, I'm looking at Amazon, I'm looking at the QQQs, I'm looking at all this stuff. And by the way, all of the enterprise tech stocks who were huge beneficiaries in COVID from actual, not just stock price, EV to sales multiple, but also like actual revenue growth acceleration, huge acceleration that they had. All those companies or a lot of those companies are testing 2019 highs. So not just the day like reset COVID and all the ben- all the stock price benefit are- is gone. So now they've gone from super expensive stocks to super cheap stocks, but they're even testing 2019 highs. I don't know if that's going to happen to the entire QQQ and all the whole NASDAQ or an Amazon. I mean, I don't know, probably, maybe uh, Tesla potentially um, as part of that. But um, but now when I fast forward, I'm like, in a lot of my space, like we've gone from people hunting for how good can it be, how much of the world are they going to take over to where's the zero shot. And now in this world that we are in, which is like, at least for a lot of my stuff, the bubble has burst um, and the good stuff and the bad stuff have been sold down, right? Like as a stock picker, like where are you... Are you still focused on finding that next zero shot? Are you still focused on deflating that narrative that's already part deflated? Well, maybe it's mostly deflated, but you're still going to stay on that. Like, what's your, like, when you come to the, come to your next, like, I'm looking for the next five ideas. Like, what are the, what are the things that stand out to you that you're like, this is the, these are the characteristics I'm like really excited about longs and shorts. So, um, we're, most of our coverage is in cyclicals, right? So we look for on the long side, old fleets. Uh, you know, we usually use a shipbuilding cycle as an example, because 
basically all the ships were bought in World War II. They last for 30 years. You get another sh- replacement fleet cycle there. Or in air, and you get another one in 20, uh, peaks out in 2011, and nobody talks about Baltic Dry anymore. Um, or, or, you know, they change the HVAC regulation. So all the, you know, air conditioners change. You know, nobody wants to buy the new refrigerant. So you get a push out, nobody buys a refrigerator for five years or whatever it is, and you get a cycle. Uh, right now, we've been focused a lot on transports. And what I think people miss about transports, we, we focus a lot on just fleets, right? So when, the transport network goes slowly, your fleet utilization goes to, you know, up, right? It takes more trucks, more trains to move the same amount of stuff because it's like they're all going slower. Asset turns go down. Uh, so one thing we're very focused on right now is with Chinese trade coming down, the economy a lot softer, decelerating growth, capacity coming up. Speeds are going to go up in transport networks, and that's going to result in excess capacity. Because like one truck going the speed of light could deliver everything, right? But when everybody's <laughs> out sick and you can't load the truck, and there's no drivers, and everyone's stuck in traffic or whatever, you know, whatever it is that slows it down. Mostly, it's loading points and intersections with other modes of transportation, like boats and do- ports and rail terminals. Um, you end up with uh, truck rate soaring and all of the you know, consequences of that. So what we're focused on now, that's a trade we already have on. We're already short truckload, truckload carriers, we're bearish transports in every way we can be. Uh, And the next step on that is to find transports bottom really early. Um, Once that speed picks up, once the volume disappears, you get maximum pain and then you get long, oftentimes well before the economy or industrial activity troughs. And then uh, they're great longs, an early cycle. Um, so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at when to get long transports on the sort of generic cyclical side on the short side. I love, we have like lucid, we have all this, you know, cause in my, in my space, it's very easy, like to identify bullshit, right? Like it's not hard to look at like plug power. Like what's the efficiency on your fuel cells? Oh, you don't say anything. Well, that's a problem. My guess <laughs> is then it's super good, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, whereas I think sometimes in your space, like I'm envious of your ability to separate like one uh, technology from another, like this stuff is like, I can do the math out and like, it makes absolutely no sense to put a fuel cell on a truck. Like if you think that that's because you haven't taken basic physics, right? Like you don't take solar power, waste electrons, converting it to hydrogen, waste electrons, storing it, waste electrons, pumping it into a mobile tank, waste electrons, turning it back into electric power while driving around when you could just put them in a battery. Like you'd have to be like, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, so we, we, we spend a lot, we're spending a lot of time. We spent a lot of time looking for those on the short side plug. Like if you think lucid is going to be a startup that enters the automotive industry and becomes the next Tesla, I don't think Tesla is the next Tesla. I certainly don't think Lucid is. Uh, so there's a bunch, there's, um, you know, we have, uh, I mean, the charging companies are, are obviously difficult. It's a whole bunch of stuff that people charge their cars at home, right? They're not going to, it's not going to be the size of the gas station industry. Nobody has a gas. Well, some people probably, have, if you're a farmer or whatever, you have a gas, maybe tank at your house, but most people don't fuel their car at their house. Like, it's very different. So there's there's some of that stuff we can go through and uh, call out. And a lot of that has worked. Tesla has not. I would bet Tesla works. 
Uh, I'm obviously uh, betting that it does, uh, but Musk is very resilient and he finds a way. Um, on the on the charging station side, the one that I know a little bit is just from all my trips to Taiwan, uh, checking the PC channel and the memory channel and the smartphone channel once upon a time um, is uh, Delta Electronics, which is like, you know, grew up among all the other falafel makers, but then, you know, kind of like expanded beyond falafel to sell pizza also. And now is like more like wants to compete with, you know, the um, European large um, industrial cyclicals and people like Siemens and things like that. And so they, they're sort of building um, or they have been building charging stations and all of this, you know, using all the supply chain battery and, and et cetera, knowledge that they, that they gleaned and super, supercharging and whatever knowledge that they gleaned from all their time growing up as a PC, uh, su- a PC power supplier um, of the bricks and the cords and so on and so forth. So I don't know if you've ever looked at, at Delta Electronics, but um, mental note for me that as you're talking about it, I'm like, oh, take a look and see what those guys are doing these days. Um so I, I, I want to say like, you know, from a, from a cyclicals perspective, that's amazing. Like I, so I just wanted to understand one thing you mentioned is that, that we would have excess shipping supply, which I totally, by the way, yes, now that you say it, I totally, totally makes sense because um, obviously because we had uh, shipping prices have gone up, right. And the low barriers to entry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, t- but you had a specific formula for, for how that would play out. You said something about increased speeds and is that just the shift to air? Like t- tell me about how that whole, like, I just want to understand how that like will unravel and how that denouement is about to happen. Oh no, it, it's, it's actually just like literally if transport networks, they call it fluidity, there are different words for it. But if you have, for example, bad weather, right? You get a train that gets stuck and then the train behind that is stuck. And then the trucking back at the dock can't unload and it ripples through the whole transportation network and speeds collapse. It actually is incredibly interconnected, not just one train, but like, you know, look at the, uh, what was this ship that got stuck in the Suez or whatever it was. And it just messed up global shipping, right? So speeds, how quickly stuff can be transported uh, is incredibly important. And, And COVID um, was a disaster for shipping speeds because dock workers were out sick, like particularly in the first quarter of 22, you had a lot of people, you know, you just, somebody's supposed to unload the truck, but the guy didn't show up to work because he's sick. Who unloads the truck? Everyone just sits there, right? Like it's, it's idiotic, but like, it's, I mean, there's unions, there's all kinds of things and it just slowed everything down. And if you have an extra hour at a dock because the docks are full, you know, it, then that truck doesn't go pick up the next load. And then another truck has to pick it up. But then that truck, so it all ripples around. So uh, what we had as a long thesis, to your point in 2020 was FedEx because a lot of belly space on commercial aircraft is used to carry packages, right? Time definite international, things like that. You know, it's, it's flying with you to Rome, uh, not on your Spirit Airlines flight, but yeah, actually, yes, on your Spirit <laughs> Airlines flight. Yeah, for you sure. Know, put packages down there. <laughs> they asked me to move over. They asked me to consume, consume less space with my legs so they can That's put right. a package. I'm sorry. Can you shrink? Um, but the, uh, the the point is, that, like, when that passenger belly space went away, air freight rates just went through the roof because there was just not enough capacity. But for trucking, I mean, and that that has that's the other kind of thing. Like, you know, suddenly 
some package that was supposed to be on an airplane that got here last week isn't here till now. And therefore inventories are short. So people are panicking to get capacity to get their packages around. You know, the whole thing was a, was a fiasco. It was an exceptional moment to be long transports. We were long a bunch of transports. And the other side of that is as the pandemic eases, you'll see not so much people even just buying trucks, right? It's actually just the trucks you have go 5% faster. You can move about 5% more stuff. And that's a lot of capacity. And when you look at the variations in something like rail velocity, 5% is nothing. You see, you see 5% all the time. And then people are confused about why trucking rates do what they do. And every, what I find amazing is it's kind of obvious when somebody explains it, right? Like when trucks go faster, they can move more stuff. When tractors go faster, they can plow more fields, right? Uh, when you explain that productivity issue uh, as the biggest variable in, in something like freight rates, uh, it's amazing to me that that isn't all the sell side writes about when they write about trucking, but they don't even mention it. It's ridiculous. And they do, they talk about like, you, there are like two and a half million class eight trucks and they sell like 250,000 a year. So like if you sell an extra 30,000 on two and a half million, that doesn't matter, right? I mean, it matters, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is if that two and a half million go 15% faster or 15% slower during the pandemic, that's a big capacity hit. And that's what I think people miss. And suddenly rates are collapsing and people are like, why are rates collapsing? It's like, I don't know, probably because people showed up to work. That's awesome. It, the the um, equivalent cyclical from my side is in the semis world, um, when there's when you have um, really good engineering improvements from the supply side, um, which are technology-based, which you don't always have. <clears throat> and um, but when you get into a period like that, it's it it actually the <clears throat> there's a long and a short to it. The long is that it um, dramatically um, increases the TAM. So like the more the the faster the computation you could do, the more computing you're going to do. Um, but the there's also like the obvious like short term, which short term could last quite a while until that whatever that new technology is absorbed into the marketplace. The short term effect is there's excess capacity and prices are going down and there's looseness and people are like, well, I don't need four to six months inventory. How's four to six weeks of inventory? That sounds good to me. And suddenly that's like, that kills like two and a half quarters because, um, and that happens every couple of years in semis and probably is right ahead of us uh, right here. I had another question. Um, I know we're running up against time, but I want to let Felix ask another question. So he had a question for you as well. So Felix, you want to jump in? Thanks, Ami. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious, Jay, about your thoughts on autonomous driving. Um, the reason is I did some work in the past with Didi, and, uh, you know, Didi has a partnership with Volvo. They announced some robo-truck project this morning, and then China approved their first batch of companies for unmanned autonomous driving service this morning. So it looks like, at least with China, this, this concept is moving forward pretty hard. So do you really think this is a dream or is there, is there really a money-making opportunity with autonomous driving? I, I think that you'll have increasingly autonomous vehicles. I mean, I mean, my car drives itself on the highway now. You, I don't trust it, but uh, it does a very good job. I can't really <laughs> argue with the fact that it works great. It's just, uh, and, you know, the idea that 
Yeah, that that's uh, there are a lot of OEMs uh, currently. Daimler is going to bring a level three system. So there's kind of two approaches. One is the ADAS up, right? Like driver assistance, advanced driver assistance software that, you know, the driver is the backup. Trucks have been using that increasingly and obviously in higher end passenger vehicles like, um, you know, Mercedes, BMW, uh, the the Cadillac uh, system is quite good. And there's some different approaches to that. Uh, Tesla, obviously, you know, with its obviously misleadingly named full self-driving. It's like if I sold a full cancer curing thing, right? Uh, But it didn't actually cure cancer. People would consider that misleading, but for some reason we let full self-driving slide. Um, You know, that is one approach. uh, And I think that's making huge progress, right? I think that LIDAR is gonna be an important part of that um, and that avoiding LIDAR is gonna be very difficult because it is a very direct method of arriving at the information you need, which is what's around me that's solid and where is it going, right? Like that's, those are pretty, whereas if you use a camera system, uh, it's much harder to actually see. And you, you see like a Musk say like, oh, you know, all driving is is eyes and a neural net. Well, that's not true. I mean, try driving, you know, uh, without the feel of the road, with that, I mean, you have a lot of senses like your sense of balance. You can tell when you're skidding. Uh, there's a lot of sense that goes into it that isn't just your eyes, you know, or just try driving with your head in a fixed point, not able to look around. Like that would be very hard. Um, so there are big problems with, uh, you know, I think vision only systems getting to uh, full autonomy. And there's kind of the top down, you know, um, approach. Um, you know, the Waymo, uh, there's some other competitors that are good that are just trying to, rather than come up through ADAS, just come down top down and, and solve the problem. Um, but yeah, I think that we, they eventually will get to increasing levels of autonomy. I think it'll be geofenced at first. There'll be like routes on which uh, you can operate. You know, like there's really, if you have like a heavy truck moving, you know, beer, to a distribution center, like it could have its own lane. It could be marked appropriately. There are some like basic problems with like, if you think like really deeply about autonomy, like if you wanted like, uh, if you had like a, an armored car carrying cash that was autonomous, right? You could just have people surround it. The software isn't gonna let them run it over. So then you could just take the cash because the car isn't gonna go anywhere, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of things like that, that I think, you know, could you could have a car that just never moves again or whatever. There need to be some redundancies, but, um, you know, I think that it is clearly going in that way. And, and I think my, my opinion, which isn't really that strongly held, is that it probably comes up through the ADAS system because it solves all of the other problems. You have a backup driver there all the time. And those systems have made really good uh, progress. So, I think it's real. I think it comes through ADAS. I think no OEM is going to have, this isn't going to be one single solution. It's going to require government involvement because you're going to need, you know, roads that are maintained, signs that aren't hanging upside down, things like that. Uh, It's going to require, I think, a different level of um, road maintenance uh, to make it functional. Uh, but I think it's it's very real, and uh, it's it's a great it's a great you know another great point of potential human progress. Um, that I don't think requires a generalized solution to AI. I think that's finally silly, uh, but it is um, 
you know, uh, uh, an area where we'll continue to make progress. And, you know, in 10 years, all the cool cars will still be stick. So you should still learn to drive a manual. Just let me know the next time an armored truck is driverless. I'll definitely drive along with it in case it gets stuck. Yeah, we should be a big that a revenue generating opportunity. But that you the same person who's tracking, you know, Elon's uh, or now the Russian oligarch uh, jets, he can just create a program to track, you know, armored cars, and then we can all, you know, sort of follow along. Yeah. Um, um, Felix, you, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to take it, take the question back if you don't mind. If if I ask, ask another question, Felix, it's okay. No, of course not. Go ahead. Okay. Go. Okay. Cool. So, Jay, like a topic that's near and dear to my heart is M and A, and I know I think maybe we see the world similarly. And I, I just want to like share notes and maybe learn a little bit. Um, I often see companies in my space, you know, make acquisitions, and you know. Not everybody shares this approach to like, you know, kind of be suspicious about that kind of move. Um, to me, the number one thing that happens is fake growth, right? Like you want, you know that your, your multiple is, your stock price is based on your multiple of your revenue. Your revenue uh, growth is the key determinant and the strength of that uh, multiple. If you see your own core organic stuff slowing, you go out and buy something. And you mix them together. And yes, of course, the first few quarters, people are like careful to back stuff out. But like within not so long a period of time, you're getting the benefit of growth there. And there's, you know, deferred revenue impacts that then get added back in the second year, which obviously help, you know, the comparisons and so on and so forth. And lots of other tricks that you could do, Um, you know, reclassifying customers uh, from one one way or another. And so therefore your customer count is naturally accelerating after you make the acquisition, things like that. Plus it adds a cost structure, whatever. I wanted to share, like from your perspective, when have you seen M&A done well, where you're actually like, oh, wow, that's, that's really good. Um, and it actually is like leads longer term even to like a better product of the company and things like that. And, and maybe like, I don't know, tell me what you think when I say like, I see m and as like a, like a warning sign to me, it's like a big red warning flashing light, but um, I'm just kind of curious to like, you know, share notes about this one subject. Oh yeah. I'm, I mean, maybe it's generational, but I come from the roll-ups blow up era, right? If you go out and you just acquire everything, you know, we made a point of saying that you can drive, you know, a truck through grant date valuation of options, uh, but you can really drive a truck through purchase allocations and purchase accounting. I mean, they got rid of pooling and they put in uh, FAS 142, you no longer amortize goodwill and take Rollins. They acquired this Clark pest control company and they had like all goodwill, like, oh my God, they had like no assets, who knew? And then uh, like a quarter or two later in the middle of the pandemic, they sell a commercial property and book like a 50% gain on an office in the middle of freaking nowhere. And it's like, oh yeah, I'll bet you mark that at pretty close to zero, right? Then you, when you sell it, you make a profit, right? And that tends to flatter earnings. The problem is that you end up having to do in a roll-up more and more acquisitions. So Rollins did 31 acquisitions of pest control companies in the three quarters before this quarter. I haven't seen the queue yet. It came out last night. But I'm sure it's a lot more, right? So you get, you get on this M&A treadmill, you got to keep them coming or else the whole thing kind of doesn't work. And eventually you run out of big targets or it becomes impossible to manage all the M&A. Uh, or in the case of Rollins, you just 
leave acquisitions and organic growth. Oops, and have to admit it and your CFO leaves. And that was kind of awkward. Um, but that isn't what the SEC went after them for, interestingly. Um, so that is like one thing. What m had done well. So yeah, I mean, Wab Tech acquiring Favely. We wrote it at the time. They see the growth chasm. That speaks volumes to me. Yeah. Like they see the rail network turning, rail equipment market imploding. They get a good look at orders because that's what they sell into and they acquire something to fill that growth gap. Where it's done well is when you're, I think, consolidating an industry to make it oligopolistic for pricing uh, or you're getting some unbelievable synergy. So like if Canadian Pacific buys Kansas City Southern, like then there are even fewer railroads and it's already an oligopoly or uh, when um, the, roo- the roofing and the roof tile industry did a, you know, Gaff and Elk merged. Um, and suddenly you have this one player that's like just the price leader. And it went from being like an 8% margin business to a 22% margin business, because where are you going to get your roof tiles? <laughs> You're going to buy them from me or somebody else who doesn't want to sell them to you at less than 20% margin. So where you're creating oligopolistic pricing, that's the place where I think it makes by far the most sense, um, or you're taking out a price spoiler or something like that. So um, that's that's the one that I think is the most the most valuable. That's interesting. So I'm uh, looking at a, a company, Yosef and I are deep diving now on um, no names, no names, um, but you know the 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 parent co um, took out a uh, price gouger essentially. And um, somebody who, whenever, whenever that the target was in competition with them, um, they'd basically be offering eighty percent lower price versus like what the parent is paying for. And so now that it, that deal is done, and there's some reacceleration, which is nice. And lo and behold, I mentioned before the customer accounts accelerating. But like, I don't know if I want to get long because when I think, well, we'll see, we'll see where it ends up. But like, when I think about it. Um, it's still a very dramatic uh, flaunt or, 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 or revelation or, or con- um, confession of over-earning that the parent is over-earning. And because it's technology, isn't there just going to be like another company come along that's going to know how to have 80% mar- gross margins and still price 80% below, the, below this code? Like That's kind of like what's stuck in my head right now why I can't like jump on board and be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll resolve that somehow. The stock goes down every day. So maybe it'll be long. I don't know. It's like, this is kind of like in my head right now. I don't know if any of that resonates and like how you find your way through something like that. Yeah. I think, I think any of that analysis is a challenge. Um, uh, Jay, thank you so much. This thank has been you for amazing. Having me. Yeah. Our pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for everyone listening at home. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll see you on the next, uh, next episode. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended 
intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.